Welcome to VR Hermits, a podcast about virtual reality development. I'm Dave Ramsey. And I'm Joe Simpson. How's it going, Dave? Going pretty good. How's it going with you, Joe? It is good. It's been a really good week. Yeah? Productive? Productive, educational, you know, just generally kind of fun. Nice. What you doing? Um... We'll get to that. Let's start with you. What are you doing? Oh yeah, okay. Uh, I uh, I read through the appendices, as you insisted that I should do as a responsible learning type person, mm-hmm. and uh, almost got done with chapter eight, which would wrap up the entirety of the first section. But I ran into some bugs in my code that are that have been kind of hanging me up, and they're mostly fat fingered stuff. That I mistyped. I mean, they're nicely tutorialed lessons. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I get a little distracted, it's really easy to miss a single line of code somewhere or something like that. And weird behaviors start happening. And I don't have a lot of experience with chasing down issues. Um, so, yeah. but as I was... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, with, with this kind of tutorial, if if there's something wrong with my code, then... I confess to just opening up their sample code and just pasting in an entire class and fixing an issue that way once or twice. But at the same time, working in Unity, it could be something wrong with the way the components are attached or you you haven't dropped an object into a field. Right. Like it's, there's just a lot more things to check that aren't evident right away. Yeah, I will eventually fail over into replacing large chunks of code with the provided stuff, but I make the effort. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I learned some really good stuff over the course of my career by beating my head against a brick wall until I actually found the thing and went, oh yeah, that's a huge issue. I should never ever do that again. It's the, the burned hand teaches best approach and so that sounds like my consulting career (laughs) well it taught you a lot didn't it yes it did um so yeah um looking through the appendices the section on c sharp was Mm -hmm. mostly review for me yeah um they used the c style arrays with the square brackets <clears throat> and in the tens of thousands of lines of C-sharp code that I've written, I've <laughs> never used those <laughs> ever. Because hmm. um, th- that thing has characteristics like it can't grow or shrink. You know, once you've made an eight element array, it's an eight element array forever. You get to make a brand new one if you want it to be a different size. Mm-hmm. Um C sharp has a what I think of as a Swift style array, which is just an object class that you could just throw stuff into. Um, it's still typed, so it's not like an Objective C style array, but that's their list class. Okay. And so a C sharp list, you can just make a list of strings and then start throwing strings into it and compare those with other ones and do intersections. And there's a ton of like set operations and things like that, that the list can do that the standard array can't. 
Um, that said, I haven't had an opportunity yet to find out if List has like GUI support for mm. the inspector. Yeah. Because the square bracket arrays have really cool stuff in the inspector to be able to support them. But yeah. it was just interesting to me that they're like, nope, these are arrays. I'm like, I don't... Huh. Now, if you really start digging into C Sharp and .NET, there's like 12 different kinds of arrays <laughs> that all have slightly different behaviors and characteristics. Um, a lot of that is just kind of Windows organic growth. Yeah. over decades and the fact that they never throw anything away so a lot of that was kind of some of the stuff that swift was trying to fix is okay let's start from a completely clean slate what kind of language would we make with no back history advantages and disadvantages there but for example like list is a nice dynamic growing thing and that's great and it's used all over the place in .NET stuff but what you don't want to do is try and use it in GUI elements in WPF. Because hmm. that list is really nice, but when you edit the list, it doesn't generate a notification that can update the UI. Oh, okay. You need a observable collection. <laughs> and an observable collection is really just a list with some slightly different other characteristics. But... um. Yeah, you start digging into different ways to make a collection of something, and there are a lot of ways to do it in C Sharp. Um, I can't wrap my head around the capitalization rules. <laughs> yeah, they seem kind of arbitrary. <laughs> the I, I, line... Oh, go ahead. I remember reading that section and just kind of thinking, okay, uh, I'm just going to do whatever makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, in, in Swift, for the most part, it's classes are capitalized, methods and variables are, or methods and properties are lowercase. Mm -hmm. um, and so you can kind of always tell. And then when you're making a variable or making a, an instance of an object or an instance of a class, you will assign that to a variable that gets a lowercase. So you can always tell when you're dealing with the, the big stuff. And what was this thing? In C-sharp, the convention is to capitalize public variables. In Unity, when the variable is only intended to be used in the inspector, then the variable is lowercased. Oh, dear God. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I think I've almost figured out what they're trying to do. This is one of those spots where I'm going to have a really hard time. Because I've got about five different naming conventions in my head at this point. And... I'm I'm losing containment. They're slipping out and hitting the other ones. And if I, I mean, know me, what's going to end up happening is I'm going to end up using um, the Swift style. Yeah. I mean, does it matter in terms of performance or is the code going to not compile? Like, no. no. It does matter a little bit for autocomplete. Um, because okay. it seems to care about case a little bit when you start, if you start typing in the lowercase version of something, it doesn't as much want to autocomplete with the uppercase version of that. Hmm. So you can end up only finding one side or the other. And that may just be more of a visual studio issue. Um, 
Interesting. But the, so, so I can't, it's sometimes a little bit tough to find the thing that I'm looking for if I don't know what case it was in. But then the other thing is like, if I know, if I know what something is, that hinted me, at least previously, for whether it's going to be uppercase or lowercase. So that I know if I've selected the right thing or not. Like, if I start trying to do autocomplete and I get game object with a uppercase G, I know I've gotten the class. Mm-hmm. Well, Whereas if I have know. the... I, well, I should know. If I get the lowercase g, I know that I've gotten a property on like the current, you know, the 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 API's pointer to the game object that is running the script. And I'm sure that technology or that terminology is way off, but. Um, I'm not sure beyond that. <laughs> it's like, sometimes I'm typing uppercase and I'm thinking like, am I talking about a class here? That's what it says in my head. And mm-hmm. so I like having the additional little bit of double check that I can use to go, oh, this is uppercase rather than lowercase first, then camel case. What's, is this Right. Is that the thing that I wanted? Now, part of that can be resolved by using slightly different naming conventions. So that my script classes are more easily distinguishable from an instance of that object. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have never been a fan of the style where you're like... Um, I need a list. Let's call it list. Even if it's happening inside a nice little for loop. I don't, don't call the list low, you know, uppercase list. Don't call it lowercase list. That's not, yeah, it's not helpful in any way. And it also doesn't visually substantively distinguish between the two. And so it's too easy to fat finger one when you meant the other, etc. I don't know. It, it's, it's going to take some more comfort. I'm not saying they're wrong. I, I just, I need to get more used to what's going on there. Um, yeah, I'm trying to find an example from earlier. I was working on a uh, Unity AI programming cookbook. And there was one class that was particularly unhelpful. Yeah, so basically you set a variable of type steering, set it the variable name to steering, and then later on you have a function called set steering that you pass in a steering name steering. And then, in, <laughs> and then inside that class you set this dot steering equals steering. Like thank you. That that is very clear. Like I know what that does after staring at uh-huh. it for thirty seconds, but I shouldn't have to stare at it for thirty seconds. And unfortunately, at this point, that's actually a convention that a lot of languages are using in their standard stuff. Yeah. Like, that's an accepted way to do it, but it, it's fingernails on a chalkboard to me. Yeah, I saw a lot of that in Swift, too. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, 
The other thing that was interesting to me was I didn't realize the garbage collection impact of structs versus classes. Um, another quote from the book, the difference between classes and structs really show up in how memory, oh yeah, typo there, really shows up in how memory is collected. For structs, memory is reclaimed when a variable goes out of scope. This isn't true with classes. Class objects are collected when there are and there is no more references to them. This is done through the use of null. So, now is that specific to Unity, or is that how garbage collection works in C sharp? I think that's C sharp. It was in the C sharp section. Um, I just didn't realize that. Like, I'm used to thinking, again, in, in like, uh, arc terms from mm -hmm. Swift, is that in soon, as soon as that reference count hits zero, it's killed. It isn't really a garbage-collected language in the normal sense. Um, and so, potentially, it, it could be possible that paying attention to this would be worthwhile. Um, that the second a struct goes out of scope, it's gone. But that doesn't necessarily happen with a larger, more complicated class. Um, so yeah, it, there's some weird optimization opportunities, or rather, the anti-pattern of bad unoptimization opportunities there, which are the ones that I'm far more likely to find. Yeah, I'm really good at those. Yeah, I can slam um, on the brakes of any application. <laughs> And then there was the stuff on the the next appendix was on the API elements of Unity. Mm -hmm. um, they've got a write up and forward property on the transform. So transform.forward. Mm -hmm. But there is no transform.back. No, it's negative forward. Well, you have to multiply by negative one. I suppose you yeah. can just write it as negative. Yeah, just in general in Unity, you don't ever yeah. go backwards. You just go negative forwards. Right. I, I really wish I could get like a GPS to give me directions like that. <laughs> <laughs> Make a negative left turn. Um, negative. I, I guess my thing is like, I can understand how somebody who's really, really trying to be a purist could make their API do that in like version one. But we're in like version five now. Like at no point did somebody go, you know what, just as a convenience, we're going to go ahead and make a left. Yeah, I think it's just trying to match up with how they laid out the inputs. Because when you set up the input controls, when you're calling inputs, you check for a value from negative one to one. And zero mm -hmm. is not moving in. On the other side of that, you're going left or right or forward or back or up or down. So I think they're just trying to be consistent with that. Yeah. I'm just not sure that the only use for those is then in the controls. Like, we were using those things for things like where bullets came out of the gun. Mm -hmm. um, and if I 
wanted to, if I was using a big rocket launcher thing and wanted a flame plume to come out the back, I'd need to do a negative forward. Yeah. I, I get it. I would really like somebody who's who knows a heck of a lot more about game engine design to explain why that isn't just part of the standard library. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I, I, I get that if I'm using the controls and I just want to take the factor that was handed to me by the control thing and multiply it by right, and it would just turn into left if it needs to, that's great. And I can continue to use that while still having the ability to say turn left. One doesn't block me from doing the other. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think you've put more thought into it <laughs> than I have. Yeah. Um, These are the same people that have the unplay button instead of the stop button. Yes. You, un- you unplay your game. <laughs> um, and then I didn't realize that assets that are in the editor folder are not included in the final distribution of your game. So it's source code that you're using while you're making the game, but it's not compiled into the final product. Yeah, the editor, there's a couple special folders like that. Yeah. Like the editor and plugins, like that is, is for modifying the Unity as an application for your workflow, mm-hmm. but not stuff that makes it into the app. I just thought that was really slick. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it totally makes sense that that's the way it happens and that's how it's going. But it's, let's call it one of those little delighters. It's like, oh, yeah. okay, that's neat. I like that. It just, it, it made me smile. Particularly like, after frowning over left, down, and backwards. But anyway. It's just like those uh, those special classes, like reserved class names like Game Manager who get a special icon. I wish the folders got a special icon or indicator that this is a a special type of folder or a, an editor folder aside from just the editor name. Just some kind of visual representation. And it's yeah, not clear spe- to me what happens. Like if I if I download some code from a, the asset store and they have a project folder for their product name and then inside that folder they have an editor folder, is that a special folder too? Or is that just... Do I need to reorganize that into the editor folder if it's an editor extension? Not really sure yet. Yeah, we need... It'd be nice to have an indicator that this is one of the special folders that applies additional business logic to the contents of the folder when you put stuff in here. And a second thing would be a slight variant on that little red dot in it somewhere or something like that that says... Whatever you stick in here is not going to make it into your final product. Mm-hmm. Um, just as, just as a teeny little warning, it's two little pieces of art. It's not that complicated, but um. So back then into chapter eight and trying to wrap that up, um, they're just like you know making it so that. When you kill the aliens, we get a count of those and making them spew blood when they die and giving the player a death state and animation and things like that. That was what the chapter was all dealing with. Um, 
so I I didn't notice before, but if you want to get, it's just hard to. I'm having difficulty figuring out how to say this. So you use get component to like get the transform or whatever like that. Mm-hmm. But at least from the examples that they're going, you don't ask for the script component. You ask for it by the name of the class that it is. Mm-hmm. So if there's a a player controller script, you would ask for the player controller component. Yeah, just get component, angle bracket, player controller, angle bracket. Right. And it's not a string. It, it's, it's like the class name. Right. Well, and, and so that's what I was thinking about it is that inside that script document is actually a class declaration. Mm-hmm. So that's actually, I think, the part that it's reading. Um, I'd have to figure out what happens if you make a file with one name with a class with a different name. You, you can't do that, at least not with the mono behavior classes. Really? Yeah, they won't. It'll just break their connection to Unity. Okay. Um... So Got yeah, so the, <laughs> so the script component is just kind of a holder of a instance of the class that's the scripty thing. Um, I was wondering if there might be if you might be able to play with inheritance that way. Like if I had a alien controller script but I had five different types of aliens. And if I put that on an earlier class, could I say, like they were using it to figure out if we've got an alien. Like we here's an object. Is this an alien? Well, does it have an alien script component? Because if it does, then it's an alien. And I was wondering if you could like do that through inheritance and say, does this have an alien base class component? I don't know. Hmm. Kind of weird. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I also keep getting caught up on the object hierarchy doesn't appear to be in the game objects. It's in the transform. What do you mean object hierarchy? Um, when I, if I've got a particular game object and I want to find out what its parent game object is, I don't really ask the game object for its parent. I ask the game object's transform for its parent. Hmm. At least in the examples I've seen. And I actually went and looked in the game object documentation to see if it had a parent property. I thought there was, like, in addition to get components, I thought there was a get components as well that returned a different set of values. There is a get components. What does that do? Do you remember? I think it's going to return an array of components that you could then query. Hmm.
Yeah, you can get components by type, so it's the same kind of function. You still pass in what type you're looking for. So if you've got multiple instances, you can get them that way. So that's not that's not helpful. Right. Well, the components are going to be sub elements. I'm looking for the parent of the object. Yeah. Which will not be a component. Um, but it's just it's weird that the parent hierarchy seems to run through the transforms and not through the object itself. I think of like. Here is a tree of objects, and this is where the ownership goes. Now, in a weird way, it kind of makes sense because that parentness is really about like display hierarchy and and positioning slash rendering. So when I move one object, it moves the children, and that really just it doesn't have to talk to the object. It just has to talk to the child transforms. That's kind of all it. Or, or, yeah. or at least where, where its primary thing is. But it just, it feels weird. <laughs> yeah, it is weird that you say it. I'm look, And a, a quick Google search of get parent unity just returned the page to transform.parent. Well, yeah. it's weird. Um, there's also a, a thing there that like, that parent isn't the object. It's basically a pointer to the object because you can mm. null it. <laughs> so when I'm used to thinking about hierarchies, if I say, okay, well, what's my parent? I'm never supposed I, to null your parents. But but you do in, in this. That's how you actually break the connection. Is you go to the child and then tell it that it's transform.parent equals null. So so I can get rid of my parents just by setting my own parent property to null? You you no just have to say you're not my parents anymore. I have no parents. No more Thanksgiving. Nothing. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. But it's all your decision. They don't have anything to say about it. Um <laughs> So in my in my head, I think of dot parent as a function that returns the parent, not a property that stores a pointer to the parent. Um, Sorry. And so just, the, the, <laughs> you're still back on the metaphor. Yeah, I was just daydreaming <laughs> about all my childhood photos turning into null pointers. <laughs> that depends upon the object hierarchy, because the photo might still be fine but then you would effectively disappear because you're no longer in the render hierarchy <laughs> nice anyway pull um, me away from this because <laughs> actually there's a couple of really cool game ideas in here somewhere Always. um and i i do have to I, I have to take away like you know a good solid half a point from unity the inability to open two projects at the same time I, oh, yeah. I, that... I, I know there's a huge overhead on the development side and they're doing it for cleanup and making sure that nobody gets wires crossed or anything, but it's a horrible pain in the butt when I'm trying to bounce between two projects to see, to compare settings. Yeah. There's that workaround I told you about. Have you tried that? Yeah. <laughs> I, I haven't gone so far as to put it on the machine next to me and be able to open one project on each computer. Yes, that technically works. 
Um, there may also be some trick, like I know with terminal commands, I can tell OS X to spawn a separate copy of the same application. Mm-hmm. So I can tell it to launch the same application from the same location, but in a separate, a completely independent application stack. I guess um, in your case, you could just open the reference copy in your VM in Windows. That would also work and still not qualify as a good answer. No. I don't think you're going to get a good answer, though. I think this is the way it is. I don't think it's a feature I'm, request that they're considering anytime soon. No. I, I'm not holding the points hostage. I'm, I, I didn't even make a, a large deduction, but... <sighs> And to be fair, uh, Unreal Engine was the same way. Yeah. Only there are a lot of things that are the same way. I mean, I, I, I totally get why they do it. It just, at get. this point in the process, when I'm trying to learn and I'm trying to compare what I did to what another project did, huge pain in the tail. Yeah. Well, I think we're a little spoiled coming from FileMaker too, because not only can we open two solutions, but we can open as many windows of the same solution as we want. So you can actually just, you can have a lot going on and you can have multiple mm-hmm. versions of FileMaker running. Yeah, it's just, it's a lot easier to reference other other work directly. Yeah, like as that. long as you're not trying to do like field definitions, mm-hmm. which are still modal. Anyway. Um, yeah, the one thing that I think Unity does deserve a few points for in this regard is, yes, you have to switch projects, but opening a project in Unity is much, much, much faster than opening a project in Unreal Engine. At least on my okay. machines. Like I don't think I ever opened a project in Unreal Engine that took less than a minute to load. Hmm. Could be. <clears throat> Not really sure why that was, but there was just always lots of loading and something happening under the scene fans spinning up <laughs> i i don't know about your experience but i also find that at least when i'm in the editor even if the window is open and again this is on my imac there's basically no processor load to unity yeah it's pretty late unless i'm actually compiling something like if i'm if i build and run the game i see some spikes i've been running right. some mo- some monitoring Application called what is it called? That's a good question. iStats menu. Mm-hmm. I mainly got this to, to take control of the fans on my machine because Apple's so conservative and scared of turning fans on because they don't want to offend anybody. <laughs> I'd rather have some fans and a nice cool laptop. So th- that's why I got this, but it just has tons of other metrics, and I've actually. It's got such good charting in it that when I go through at the end of the day and try to figure out how much work I did, I can actually tell which times I put I built a device or I built a game and put it on my device because I can see huge spikes in the graphs. So. Kind of handy. Yeah, but no, it's just it's. I mean, it's been. I've had it, it when. Previously, I played with Unity. It was usually based upon some announcement where they just released a brand new version. 
which is probably part of my difficulty. But every previous time that I played with Unity, I had much, many more issues with stability. Oh, one other um, thing about performance, you have to do this on a per project basis, but um, by default, Unity opens new projects with OpenGL, which is fine, but you can actually set it to use Metal or Metal 2 if you're running High Sierra, which is much more performant just as far as running the editor. Um, obviously, you can target metals in your applications as well if you're making a Mac game, but you it's it's in a weird place, the setting, because it's in the player settings, which is where you configure what's actually going to play the game when you build and run it, but in this case, it's just affecting the editor. There's a little checkbox that says, uh, like, metal editor mode or something like that. It's still tagged as experimental, but I've used it for two months. I haven't had any issues. So this is edit project settings player. Nope. No? No. Not the project set or player settings? It is player settings, but I don't think... Can you get to them from the edit menu? I thought it was... You have to go to the build settings. It's like file, build settings. And then oh, okay. Player settings. And where's the player thing? Little button on the bottom of that window that says player settings. Oh, hey, player settings. And then there's three tabs in that one, and one of them is the PC and Mac tab. And somewhere in that very long list, there's a little metal checkbox that you can turn on. Player settings didn't do anything. It it populated the inspector area. Oh, it's the same thing then. Like literally, that was what I got by going into edit player settings hmm. never saw it metal 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 does it say metal or am i looking for like open gl at this point metal now which section was it it's just on the tab with all the mac stuff make sure you're not on the ios or android tabs not I just don't have any tabs in the inspector there are three tabs there they don't look like tabs because they're using icons with no labels anywhere which I hate <laughs> <laughs> just that's a horrible design trend and I, I just hate it okay I just don't have any idea what you're looking at but that's okay we're doing a podcast we should talk about something else I will make myself a note and we can talk about it later no, 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 that's not acceptable. Metal? I will send you a screenshot. So player settings, project settings. You got company name, product name, icon name, default, cursor, cursor hotspot. Right below where it says cursor hotspot, there are three tabs. One of them has a down arrow. If you mouse over it, it says PC, okay. Mac, and Linux standalone settings. Uh -huh. And then if you scroll just a little bit, right below all the autographic stuff is Metal Editor Support. Okay. So box. just so you know, when I bring up player settings, I have the down arrow with the line. Mm -hmm. That's the only icon in that bar. I don't have three. You don't have an Android and nope. WebGL? Nope. Huh. 
that may actually be because you've been working on Android stuff. And so you can, once you're working on Android stuff, you can say use something different in the inspector. Hmm. Or maybe I have to turn on support for experimentally things, or I don't know. But no, that's probably just something... the APIs that you downloaded when you installed Unity, because you got that long list of checkbox of iOS mm-hmm. development, Android development, and I must have just checked these. Yeah, I don't know. Fun. Maybe I didn't turn on Metal. Yeah, we know how to paint the audio experience though. <laughs> Which is a horrible metaphor. Paint the audio experience. <laughs> sure. Word pictures. I mean, I saw the words uh, smelling and collider in a table of contents today. So <laughs> at some point I'm going to be creating a smell function to sniff out colliders in a game. I, I have heard people talk about code smell. Like, when this code smells. Yeah. You're just kind of looking at it. You're like, no, I don't I don't think this is quite... Something's not kosher here. Um, okay. So, um, that digression aside, um, that was basically what I had as fun little comments from my learning process. I've got just... I've got like five pages left in chapter eight. But it was getting back into animation triggers and animation engine stuff. And I said, mm-hmm. okay, we're going to wait a minute and just move on. Um, but yeah, so hopefully by next week I'll be digging further into section two, which is FPS stuff. And maybe even a little bit of VR stuff, unless that happens really late in the section. So, Yay! Cool. I need to get into that section as soon as humanly possible because right now I'm really thinking about making a simpler game. <laughs> well, Unity 2017.2 <laughs> just shipped with a whole bunch of new uh, 2D game stuff. It, it certainly seems much more reasonable at this stage, but it's also I've been walked through the process and so it seems like something I could do at this point, but that wasn't really the objective. Yeah. But I haven't learned the stuff that I need to know in order to be able to do the thing that was the original objective. So, I mean, that was also impacted by the paperclip game, but we'll talk about that. In my limited limited experience so far, the VR aspect isn't the hard part because mm-hmm. Unity, Unity and Daydream give me so much out of the box. Like, I'm not worried about the rendering pipeline or tracking or anything like that. I'm still just using Unity to build 3D scenes and still facing the same problems that you faced in section one. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's going to be that different. That chapter goes into more, uh, the VR section of this book goes into more Vive and Oculus stuff, which is, I think, what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. The uh, yep. The game itself was kind of fun, but I also think it's a textbook example of a game that you shouldn't just sprinkle VR on because you can. (laughs) Like it was a fun little tower defense game, but playing it in VR, it doesn't, VR doesn't add anything to the game. Mm -hmm. Um, It was just, here's a 3D game that you can stand over in VR and play. 
So yeah, maybe maybe it wasn't the best example. I think they probably just added that section on or that couple of chapters on later on. Yeah. That's my guess. So yeah, that catches me up. What have you been doing? So obviously just working on my project. Um, spent a little bit of the week just cleaning up the scene a little bit. I had just needed to make it smaller and kind of needed to finalize the space, the apartment scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so I spent a couple of days just tweaking everything and there was a lot of overlapping assets and just things not looking quite right. And then things were massively off scale. Like I think at one point the kitchen counter was like up to my chin mm-hmm. and the bathtub was about the size of a hot tub. So just spent some time shrinking the entire apartment down and re- resizing a lot of the assets and just moving things. And I think you know everything in there is still basically in placeholder mode aside from the walls and the floor. So I made three floor panels in Maya and right now they're just, they don't look like anything special. They're just size mm-hmm. at the size that I want. There's a large one for kind of the main living area, a small, like kind of a medium sized one for the kitchen and then a small square one for the bathroom. And the only reason I made three separate panels as opposed to just one big one to cover the whole floor is because I wanted different materials, like different floor, like floor tiles in the bathroom and maybe a ceramic tile in the kitchen and then some kind of wood floors in the rest of the apartment. But right now I've just got placeholder materials on those are like, these are about the colors I think I want. And then, uh, yeah, just spent some time resizing everything and um, basically to the point where every time I load the app, I'm like, yeah, this looks pretty good. Like that couch has to go, but this the space is the size <laughs> that I want. Like, that, that couch just has to go. It does. Every couch in, every couch in the low poly packs, are they're all pretty bad. I know they can do better because they, every you know, lots of the other assets look great, but apparently their answer to a couch is blocky things with jagged angles. Okay, that's good enough. It looks like a couch from really far away. Like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Something almost, but not quite entirely, unlike a couch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe I should get it stuck in the hallway somewhere. <laughs> so at one point i was just playing around with lighting and materials um, most of the time i'm working i'm working in unlit mode because i just don't care at this point but uh-huh. to actually run it in vr i actually have to have some light so i just have a couple of point lights kind of distributed around the scene not placed very well but just enough to get some light in there so i can you know see something besides darkness when I put the headset on and at one point I was just playing around like what would it be like if I got rid of all the lights and used unlit materials everywhere and so I tried that and I ran it in the editor it looks really cool like everything mm-hmm. you know all of the materials are flat I switched the shader to like the unlit material that unity ships with and it looked really neat and then I put it on the headset and I was like wow that looks really cool and then I moved like half a centimeter and it was instant sickness 
just like I had to go lay down. Like it was horrifying. My eyes couldn't find depth at all. So it was like I was moving in a 2D world and my brain had just immediately given up. Like something is horribly wrong. So yeah. Safety tip, boys and girls. Unlit scenes, probably not a good idea. Maybe I did something <laughs> wrong, but uh, I'm not really going to do any more debugging to find out. <laughs> Actually, there's a whole another idea that I'm not sure if anybody's ever really tackled, which is the to try and put together games or experiences using VR anti-patterns. <laughs> so it's like, this game is designed to make you ill. No yeah. refunds. <laughs> Do you need a purge? <laughs> and just just see how many different ways, like, do something that, that slows the refresh rate, which some people find really disturbing. Are you having or trouble just... sleeping? This game will make you pass out. <laughs> Every time you take a step, the world rotates 33 degrees. Oh. In a random direction. <laughs> so it's completely independent of whatever your movement is. It picks a random direction and distance. And rotation. Ugh. Yeah, no thanks. But yeah, I don't, I don't quite know how to describe what I saw. Because it looked really... It still looked three-dimensional in the window in unity so i couldn't like take a screenshot of it and say look how bad this was because it still looked cool there but in the headset it just looked like the entire scene was 2d like the the angle that i load into when i first start the app up i can see the couch right out in front of me and i'd see the side of the couch and kind of see it long you know the, a bit of it because i'm you know, standing higher than the couch but it looked like the entire thing was just painted onto the wall <laughs> <laughs> like there was no depth anywhere at all. So everything was the same distance as everything else. Yeah, it was pretty horrific. I I actually knew somebody back in college who had no depth perception. Um, two things at different distances were just flat. The entire world, the entire universe yeah. was just a flat painting in front of them. <clears throat> makes it a little difficult to drive um, yeah, yeah but, i'd have to look up the name but there was a story of an anecdote from somebody i think he was on the rev vr podcast mm -hmm. i think rev interviewed him a couple years ago um and the guy had he was he had no death perception but he got an oculus dk1 either dk1 or dk2 and you know, like just had a curiosity and was working with that and slowly over the course of a couple of weeks or months he actually like healed his lack of depth perception really so even like outside the headset he had depth perception yeah like basically vr helped train his brain to be able to see depth for the first time huh yeah it's a pretty interesting story Let's see if i can find a link to it yeah i want to listen to that one yeah so yeah, been you know, I spent a little bit of time cleaning up the project in terms of visual sense and then I got into coding and basically making 
the character move around. And I mentioned a little bit of this last week of the, the approach that I used during prototyping was, you know, just trying to find out if the idea was fun was just to basically create a nav mesh and have a character do a thing based on, you know, setting its destination and setting some properties on the nav mesh agent. And for the actual project I'm working on, that's a very limited approach that really isn't going to get me the behavior that I want. So I need much more organic animal type behavior. So I started trying to work out some of it myself and then ended up finding some stuff in the asset store. And there's a couple different things that I've started working with and I'm not really sure what I'm going to do. Um, but the one I wanted to talk about is called Polarith AI. It's made, it's a, you know, just a big packet of scripts and a couple of debugging stuff for the editor. And basically it has, uh, it's basically a steering system where I'm going to badly explain it because I don't understand it very well. Um, uh -huh. But it's a very complicated setup process. But once you get it set up and working, it's actually pretty cool what it can do. But I've run into some limits with it already. So it's all kind of caveated. But basically you have an agent, which is your AI character. And uh -huh. you can the agent could be, you, know, you could just make the entire agent uh, like a child object to a parent, another game object if you didn't want to try to mix up all the components. Because you need a lot of components to get this thing working. Um, so you you define an agent. You give you give the agent a sensor, which is basically just a little asset you create using a GUI they made, where you you define basically two main types of sensors. A line sensor would be kind of like a game, like say if you were making a racing game, and you wanted to keep all the AIs driving around the track, you would use something like a line sensor. Um, okay. The circle sensor is just a plane of sensors and you can define how many receptacles in the circle get generated and obviously the more receptacles the better results you'll get but also you'll be kind of slowing performance down after a certain while so you know the examples went with 16 sensors to start out with and that's been reasonable to work with so far so you've got an agent, the agent has a sensor that it's using, and then you define objectives. And objectives are basically, what do you want this thing to seek and what do you want it to avoid? So their example in the documentation, I think, was um, interest and danger. So you have an interest object and then danger object. And you can do this by game object, or you can also do it by layers. So the layers in Unity. So you can have you know, tons of game objects all on the same layer and have AI avoid all those types of objects or be attracted to those. Um, so you define, it's kind of weird, you define the, the, what did I just say they were called? Objectives. But defining them doesn't really do anything. You just give them some names and a list and then you have to go create an environment for each one of those. And the environment is another game component you can put it on its own environment game object, or you can combine them on multiples if you need to. But basically, the environment game component is what you decide 
that's where you pick whether it's a specific game object or a whole layer of objects or multiple layers of objects or multiple game objects. You set all of that up and um, set some properties on it of like how much avoidance or how little avoidance, things like that. And then that still isn't enough. You need a sensor perception, perception sensor, something like that. And that you pass instances to the objectives and then you pass that back to the agent and then you still don't have anything working yet at this point. <laughs> <laughs> at this point, okay. you, need to, you need to apply some smoothing and some interpolation and a bunch of other stuff. But basically, 10 or 15 more components later and dozens of properties, <laughs> you have some pretty cool stuff. And, uh, you know, the examples, they've got some pretty good YouTube videos. Um just showing some basic examples. Their documentation is okay, but it's it's written by smart people for smart people. And in mm -hmm. this particular instance, I'm not this kind of smart yet. So they're just making like casual references to stuff that I have no idea what they're referring to. So basically I've got an AI that can do some pretty good seek behavior and some, by it left to its own device, some okay avoid behavior. Like it's not gonna walk through things anymore, but I don't have it doing very good seeking when it can't see or stop seeking if it can't see. So if the thing it's seeking is no longer in view, ideally I would want it to stop, either stop looking for it or assume that it knows where it's going. So, you know, just kind of project the path like, okay, I'm following this guy, but he went behind a tree, but I know he's going to come out the other side because I'm not stupid. Mm. Like, these types of decisions okay. we make all the, yeah. all the time. Um, or I, I guess a better example would be I'm walking down the street. Somebody's in front of me. They turn around the corner. I know they didn't disappear. I know they're around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> You need like a pursuit knowledge for a while. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't really and have actually, any of that working yet. Maybe you could do it that way if you make the thing that it's pursuing not quite perfectly connected to the thing that it's chasing. Mm -hmm. So that when it disappeared off of sight, you could leave the chase point behind. Well, the the problem I currently have with this setup is it it's not sight-based at all. It is basically right. saying, um, as long as I'm sensing you, I know you're in the scene somewhere, I'm going to keep chasing you. So I may be on the opposite, the target may be on the opposite side of a wall, and it'll just walk into the wall, Grand Theft Auto style. Mm. Where at that point, it's like, you either need to figure out how to go around the wall very, very quickly, like change course. Don't just walk into the wall and then calculate. But as you see something go around the wall, go around it or stop looking for it entirely and, and go back to an idle state. So searching around with this type of stuff, I, I'm i not sure if I'm going to use Polarith or if I'm going to use Polarith in combination with the next thing, which is called Sensor Toolkit. Now, center, now, I should say that the, the whole Polaris thing, it basically gets me 
doesn't really get me any movement. They have some movement controllers that you can use out of the box, but they're really just meant for debugging and testing. You really have to write your own controllers. So you, you reference their the properties on the agent context. And you know if you've got an agent that has four or five objectives, at any, at any given time, the, those calculations are gonna run and the agent context is gonna return a value of where it thinks you should go. And you can get that transform and then you can set that as a destination or just walk to it or teleport to it or whatever you wanted to do. Mm-hmm. But I'd have to write all of that myself. Um, you can do it, you know, I can obviously base it on physics and set momentum on a rigid body, things like that. Um, just stuff I haven't done yet. I've got some of it working, but very, very badly. Um, but before I solved that problem, I also wanted to solve the sensing problem. So the sensor toolkit also doesn't do any movement. It just returns, it, it takes it, it solves the same problem, but in a different way. It uses sight and sound in the game rather than, you know, this like loose coupling of game objects. Mm-hmm. And I should say the, the Polarith one does have a visibility option as well, but it's not very performant and it only works with non-static objects. So one of the one of the really cool things about Polarith, like all of the furniture of the apartment, I could make static and it's not gonna be constantly retrying to calculate those. It's gonna have a cached position of all of those. So mm-hmm. it's gonna be much faster at calculating what to avoid and what not to. But if I remove that static checkbox, it's going to reevaluate those constantly and performance is going to go down, which is not really something I want in a VR app. Um, so the sensor toolkit, it solves a similar problem, but using sight and sound, I haven't really looked into how the sound works, but with the sight demo, basically it was just advanced ray casting. Um, and you could actually have line of sight cones. So you could say, you know, how okay, what is the line of sight for this type of person or character, mm-hmm. and set it that way, and you could set up a, a cone. Um, so you could do some pretty cool stuff with that. I haven't done much with that; I didn't make it very far. The one thing I will say about Polarith is it's everything is on a plane. So you know, if the character is on the ground or a meter off the ground sensing an objective and that objective is two or three meters off the ground, the character doesn't know that. It just knows it's that direction. So it doesn't go up. So like if you were building a space game, this would not work. Gotcha. Anything you need to actually move around in three dimensions or if you're coding birds or something like that. Hmm. So these kinds of problems are incredibly satisfying to think about i have have no idea what i'm doing but says you no no i i I totally get it yeah i have no idea what i'm doing but it is it's just a fascinating topic of like these are interesting things that i have never considered or thought of like i you know i'm finally getting far away from just making another gui for a database like <laughs> um, artificially intelligent hunter seeker algorithms yeah are, are just a whole different there there is almost no overlap yeah exactly so there's so many questions that i have so many things i don't know 
And frankly, I have so little information. I don't know how to ask the right questions of these tools to find out, you know, if they do what I want them to do, if, mm -hmm. if what I want to do is a reasonable thing for me to want to happen or if there's a better way. So I guess my immediate plan is to spend some time learning more about game AI in general and also Unity's implementation of AI. And I'm starting with a Unity AI programming cookbook that we got in that Humble Bundle. Um, I started that about an hour before the podcast and didn't make it very far. I think just the first two or three recipes. But yeah, it's just, it's a promising book. It claims to be able to teach me a lot, at least some of the main terms and, and kind of design patterns of how to handle situations. And then kind of the pros and cons of you should use this one or sh shouldn't use this one. And that's where I saw the term let me quote it exactly. The smelling function using a collider-based system is one of the chapters I'm going to get to. So, okay. <laughs> going to be smelling colliders soon. <laughs> what does a collider smell like? No idea. Although I am, I am going to cosplay as a game object at some point. And I'm going to have like the little transform widget <laughs> on me somewhere and i'm gonna have a capsule <clears throat> collider other than that it's just gonna be me but that's kind of where i'm at with the project you know i guess my recap doesn't sound all that great but i feel like i made a lot of progress and um just you know gripes with polarith aside i had set aside weeks for finding out the information that i found out on friday so, like, I feel like I've just sped up way further in the mm -hmm. project than I thought I was going to be just by finding out that, hey, there are people who put these entire things for sale in the asset store and you can use them if you know how to. Like, <laughs> oh, okay. that That's great. I actually do remember when I was doing C-sharp programming for my day job when I and, – and, and then also with Swift programming, there was this – line in the sand that I crossed when I had the skills necessary to integrate other people's work. Mm -hmm. Like prior to that, I had to write every line of code because I just didn't know how to tie into everything else. Yeah, exactly. Like I didn't, I didn't know enough to even understand their documentation when they said, no, just put this here and do this and go and it'll work for you. And I'm like, that sounds great, but none of those words mean anything to me. So, congratulations. It's a, yeah, it's a significant milestone. milestone. Yeah, so now I just need to get to that point with the AI stuff, which is why I want to start with that cookbook, just to learn the basic terms mm -hmm. you know, of AI in general, learn what, what people do in Unity. Even if I don't implement anything from this cookbook in my project, I want, I'll at least know what the Polaris and Sensor Toolkits are referring to Mm -hmm. And then uh, kind of go from there. So yeah, that's kind of what I got. So we talked last week about doing a quick recap of our thoughts on the Apple events and Google events from the past couple of months. And specifically, you know, not making this into a tech review podcast, but just what they said about AR and VR and what they didn't say and thoughts mm. on that. Um, so I guess I'll start with the Apple event. 
I don't have a ton to say on it other than, you know, not going to get a new iPhone anytime soon. But the thing that stood out to me is they they released AR Kit at WWDC, and all summer long I saw hundreds of developers sharing really cool concepts and videos and gifs and just lots of really great stuff of both fun but also some practical uses for AR Kit. And what Apple chose to demo was just another 3D game that being in AR didn't add anything to the game other than wow you can look you can put it on a table and walk around it like but that doesn't <clears throat> add anything to the gameplay at all um and i just felt like i could i could hear like millions of people's eyes glazing over during that demo <laughs> like this is the, this is the least exciting thing for most people i I'm wondering if it's possible for me to agree with you in every detail and simultaneously substantively disagree with you. Um, (laughs) I I think you're absolutely correct. And I'm not quite sure that that was the perfect demo, but as I was watching it, I was also realizing that one of the biggest problems with doing more advanced gaming on iOS in particular has been the the lack of flexibility in a pure touchscreen display to do precise targeting and things of that nature. So if you wanted to do something FPS-ish in iOS, you're trying to do virtual thumbsticks that have no feedback and always kind of suck. Like the inability to do that kind of targeting... Mm-hmm. whereas in their environment, the movement of the entire device became a proxy for that and actually had a pretty high degree of fidelity while still giving you the ability to do touch controls and things of that nature. Now, that's me interpreting what they did, not just looking at what they did. Like the demo, I don't think sold that concept. Yeah, like, but as I was the, watching it, I realized that actually that could be really useful for some stuff. Well, the, for the demo, making I, better iOS games. The demo I remember wasn't that at all. It was there wasn't a first person view. You were a third person camera looking down on a scene. Yes, but it, it it had the. That's why I'm saying that their demo didn't sell it. Yeah, but that you still had a high degree of precision if you wanted to target a particular thing on screen or doing movement, like there's always that, I just touched the screen. Did I want to move or did I want to shoot? Like how, how does that, it's all just touches. And this actually creates a second input that's got some pretty good fidelity to it so that I can have screen touches, but I can also have perspective shifts. Yeah, yeah, and I'm not saying AR kit sucks or the phone sucks. I'm yeah. saying specifically Apple had a chance to tell millions of people what AR was, and they right. didn't because they showed a game. And I'm not even saying like you're talking about different things you could do with games. I don't think they should have showed a game at all. They should have showed the tape measuring app that is on the App Store where you can measure rooms, or they should have showed the IKEA app, something practical that most people would like. Because you know we we tend to forget that most people don't either they don't play games or they don't think about them 
as an important part of their lives in the way that game developers and gamers do. Like one of my friends who I worked with for many years, when I showed him the Daydream, you know, I tr he tried the Mars experience, he tried a couple apps, and as soon as he took off the headset, he said, so what else, What can you do with it besides gaming? Like, right. just not interested. Like, he doesn't want to play games. What can, what can it do for education? What can it do for communication? Stuff like that. And I, I just feel like Apple botched that opportunity entirely. Yeah, they had a much better AR and VR story in WWDC. Yeah. It's just I mean, weird, just, like, they've, they've had months of developers basically throwing them free demos on mm -hmm. Twitter, and no, let's not use any of those. Let's not contact any of those developers. It just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah. It had a lot of overlap with the previous demo that they had done with the tape, with the game rolling out on the table and kind of mm -hmm. grows out of the table and oh, okay guys i i get the concept that's neat and it looks really cool but let's do something now yeah that that'll be um, cool when it's not on my phone <laughs> it, i'm serious if i have to hold my phone up to play a game like that that's not comfortable i've tried a couple of those already they're uncomfortable yeah. to hold your phone like that So yeah, like if I can put that on my face like I can with VR, then that sounds great. We just need to get past this the smartphone era of AR as quickly as possible. Which is kind of a you know, we have to actually have the smartphone era to get past it because <laughs> this is where all the development is and this is where all the interest is. So we need to kind of figure out all the stuff with the industry. Yeah. And solve all the well, problems. And, and also where all the hardware is. Like I was looking at at VR stuff as much as thirty years ago. Like actually, like ordering catalogs to be sent to me that had hardware and things like that, and the resolution's terrible, and the computer that it requires to run it would cost you a hundred thousand dollars. But it was just barely almost possible mm -hmm. um and so yeah they're they're the more hardware we've got the more users we've got the more users we've got the greater the demand is the greater the demand is the more people who are interested in marketing to that and building better experiences but yeah we're so early in that curve yeah we're we're just barely out of the catalogs that I got shipped to my house when I was a kid. Like, yeah, theoretically it's purchasable by human beings today, but just barely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and I particularly, I want AR for the productivity aspects. I, I'm not saying I'll never play AR games, but... When I think of VR, I tend to think more towards gaming and entertainment. And when I think of AR, I think of productivity apps and communications and, you know, possibly even replacing computer displays in a couple of years or a couple of generations of AR. Like, I would love to just replace my entire office, like have the need for a desk and a keyboard and a computer, <clears throat> just have that go away. 
it's pretty far down the line, I know, but but holding in the, in the meantime, holding a smartphone over my table to play a game doesn't feel very <laughs> satisfying. Yeah, there was um, there's a game that I play a ton of on iOS. It's got an Android client as well. It's called Ascension Chronicle of the God Slayer. Okay, and it is a card game. So it's a physical board game card game that was created by some game designers who had a lot of experience with Magic the Gathering and were designing a card game to fix a lot of the problems with Magic the Gathering. And it's just, it's got a really good multi-user client that works well on iOS and Android. And I've got some friends who know how to play the game and they're scattered around the country and I have four to six games of Ascension running constantly. Just mm-hmm. all day, every day, I pop in, take a move, get back out. Um, somebody made a VR version, which involves kind of standing in the middle of like a wooded glen and playing the cards out into the clearing in front of you. And it looks gorgeous. I'm like, this is a card game. Yeah. So that's an, that's an example I think where AR would be a good fit. Like throw the other the rest of the card game on the table as if they were mm-hmm. all there playing the card game with you. You should do that. Could be. I got I got so much work to do before I even get to that point. <laughs> nice. So um, yeah. So that's my Apple yeah. take. The Google stuff, I know you didn't get a chance to watch the event, mm-hmm. but uh, the Google event, I don't think you missed much since you're not terribly interested in Daydream, but right. the only thing I really have to say about it is it went really fast. The event didn't go very fast. It was two hours long. I spent a very, very long time talking about Google Home products, and then uh, like they were really proud of their new $400 speaker. <laughs> And uh, which I'm sure it's great, but I'm I'm not the target market for that, definitely. Um, But they they did a new revision of the Pixel phones, which looked pretty neat in terms of specifications. Um, But it it just kind of bugs me that you know they they brought out these two phones last year, Pixel and Pixel XL, and they're pretty great. And, you know, they're not super feature rich, like they're not waterproof. They don't have slim bezels, stuff like that, but they're really solid phones. And then the second year, you know, everybody always jokes about how Android is fragmented. Google fragmented their own phone line with two phones. So they've actually got, you know, Pixel 2 and Pixel 2 XL. One is made by H- by HTC and the other was made by LG. They look completely differently. <laughs> you know, they just—they they don't look like the same phone at all. <laughs> Just—it's like, wow, that. How did this happen? And then, um, I don't think I would consider the small one after having larger phones for a while. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm definitely going to skip this generation, at least for now, if not entirely, because the new phone looks really cool. First of all, it doesn't really have anything that I need. Like I'm still targeting this device, this classic right. device. So there's not really any need for me to get it for development. It doesn't really add anything to the VR experience. I guess you have a little bit feel, feel, uh, potentially a bigger field of view with a bigger screen and the new lenses. But there's one thing about the device itself that just 
I think is atrocious. They rounded the inner corners of the screen. <laughs> and it's horrible. I don't I've never heard I haven't heard anybody say anything about it yet, but I think it just looks absolutely terrible. But only on the big one. The little one doesn't isn't like that. Um I'm pretty sure that John Syracuse did a whole rant on that when they did basically the same thing with the video player in QuickTime. Yeah, and rightfully it so. It plays movies and just rounds off the corners. He's like, I want those pixels. Yeah, those are my pixels. <laughs> give, give me those video pixels. I don't, don't do that. Video is not rounded corners. That's not what video looks like. Never, ever, ever show it to me that way. <laughs> yeah. See, just in terms of that, it looks kind of bad. Now, in terms of the new Daydream, the Daydream View, um, I ordered that immediately. I think within a minute of the store coming back up. So hopefully I'll get it pretty early. Um, but it's essentially, you know, it's the same headset, same controller, but they modified the headset just to fix some of the issues with it. So the biggest complaints that they were having were comfort and heat. I thought it was reasonably comfortable. Um, but if, if you use it for 45 minutes or an hour, it does start to press in on your cheeks um, because all the weight is kind of falling on your face. Whether, right. you know, with the HTC Vive, you have a little bit of that with the strap. But once you get the deluxe audio strap, it's like wearing a, a crown or a hat where the, the weight's evenly distributed across your head. Um, so they, they claim to have fixed that issue with adding bigger padding and more comfy padding as well as a new top strap it's optional you can take it off if you don't want it um but it'll kind of pull the weight back from the top a little bit and, and pull the weight towards the back of your head and then uh they also claim to have fixed the light bleeding so that's i think my biggest complaint with the headset it if you're in a well-lit area and you saw this when you tried it at the idea foundry you know we were in a very well-lit space you just see a lot of outside light when you're in the headset, which is definitely not what you want in VR. Um, when I'm sitting at home in the evening in my living room, I don't really notice it. But if it's you know 10 in the morning and I've got all the windows open, then I definitely do. And then, so they claim to have fixed that. Um, you know, I'll have to try it and see for myself. But then the biggest improvement is they've actually put a heat sink onto the back plate that holds the phone in. And Ooh. yeah, I'm not sure how that works, how well that's going to work. What they were telling people at the event is that, and I'm not sure if this applies to the Pixel 1 or just the Pixel 2, but they're basically saying that the heatsink and the ventilation work so well that the phone runs better in VR than out of it. Which I'm like, mm, that sounds like something nice to say, but we'll see. <laughs> I'm I'm sure that they have some sort of speed test that they did that that proves that for one particular use case. But yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, if I can stay in VR longer, and particularly if I can, if I don't have to take the phone out of the headset over and over again in a short time, that'll make me very happy. Because current my current workflow is, I've got a corner of my desk. I've got a very long braided USB-C cable plugged into the dock. I plug the phone into that. Whenever I need to build the app, I build that. It only takes, you know, at this point, the project only takes about 30 seconds. As it grows, it'll take longer, I'm sure. Um, 
And then once that builds, I pop it into the Daydream view. It does this thing. I've got to calibrate the controller and then do whatever tests I need to do. And then pretty much immediately take it out of the headset and turn off the VR mode because it'll get really, really hot if I don't. I can't just leave it, let it sit there for 10 minutes plugged in um, right? because I'm worried that it's going to blow a hole in my office. So, you know, if this new ventilation lets me leave it running, you know, it would be nice if I could just close the VR app while it's in the headset without taking it out. Like, just be smart enough to know that, okay, I put it down, turn the screen off. Yeah, actually, as I'm thinking about it, it could be entirely possible that the addition of the heat sink allows it to drop the temperature of the processor core enough that it can speed up. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of those processors are set to scale down performance as heat grows. If it runs better in the headset than out of the headset, it means that just as a normal user, they're already hitting those heat limits and scaling down the processor just normally. That actually to have that phone run the way it's specced, mm-hmm. that it needs a huge heat sink on the outside of the thing. Which... Like so, the good news is it's entirely possible that that's true. But in my eyes, that means you've got a huge design problem with the phone. <laughs> well, I don't think I don't think VR itself overheats the apps. It's definitely a per app basis. So some of the apps made by Google and some of the other big developers are really really optimized and don't heat up as fast. Right. Um, other third party apps, especially from people like me, aren't as optimized and can heat up pretty quickly. I I was, I was mostly comparing with their statement that it runs better in the headset than out. Yeah. Is that for that to be the case, that's actually their bump, they're, they're scraping against some limits right out of the gate. Anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of neat stuff. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty excited about getting it. Um, if, if nothing else was for the heat and the comfort issues, but yeah, the, I guess the only thing I have to say about the event with daydream is they, you know, they touched on, you know, last year we launched with 25 games. Now we've got 250 games. Here's a new headset. You know, they showed a, like a quick video with it, but it was a really short portion of the event, which kind of felt weird to me. Like this is a huge platform that you're launching and you really didn't give it much time on screen. So I'm wondering, now they, they didn't launch anything with the uh, WorldSense headsets, so maybe they're just waiting for that event to happen in the near future, whether that's this year or next year, and have a more VR-specific thing. But yeah, just kind of, I was expecting much more VR since they're kind of one of the big players in the VR industry now. And uh, yeah, just it was just yet another device. Yeah. It was, you know, kind of. It was about the same amount of attention that Apple gives to an Apple TV or a new Wi-Fi router or something. Like, oh, we have a new thing over here. Go check that out too. Anyway, check out this Pixel Book. Like, no, go back to the VR thing. I wonder if 
Google knows enough about the people that they're talking to based upon Google searches to be able to say that everybody who wants more information about this will just go search. Yeah. And that the only people they actually have to reach in the presentation are the people who wouldn't. I'm, I, I'm just wondering how, how good that data collection is. And if they can just go, nope, all we're going to do is tell you there's something new, go search for it, and you'll do that. We don't, we don't have to tell you anything else about it. No point in demoing it. You're going to figure it out. Yeah. I just, I but want to I just want to We're selling the new home audio monopod. <laughs> <laughs> We've really got to talk about that because otherwise nobody's going to go look. Yeah. Yeah. I just want a lot of, a lot more people to try VR. And it's, it's kind of a hard thing to market. Uh, you know, it's almost a cliche at this point in the VR industry that you have to try it to understand because you really do. Mm -hmm. you, you can explain it to somebody all day and then, okay, whatever, that sounds neat. And that that's not the reaction you get from anybody when they try it. It's always pretty awesome. So yeah, I guess my, my big gripe of the week was that I felt like both companies, and maybe I'm just taking too much of a VR, AR-centric view because I just kind of see it as the next big computing platforms. And I just don't feel like, like, why are we still talking about smartphones and laptops? Like, those are just commodities. <laughs> Joe is over it. <laughs> Pretty much. Anyway, so we got, I don't know if we have time, but do you want to talk about one more topic? Um, I, I think we save that for another time. Okay. I mean, the, our recording time's running an hour and 44 minutes right now. Yeah. That'll be a really long episode if we then spend the next half hour talking about this other thing. Okay. So I will, why don't we just drop a link in? Um, mm -hmm. it, chances are, if you listen to this podcast, you've probably already heard of this game. Um, but if you haven't, it's called Paper Clips and... Or paperclip, can't remember. But I will drop a link in. It is a web game, and not going to say too much about it. Just go and play it for a couple minutes, and you'll know pretty quickly if you like it or if you don't. And if you're like me, you may not get anything done for a day or two. <laughs> uh, definitely give it a couple of minutes. The first mm -hmm. thirty seconds seem kind of pointless. Yeah, exactly. Give it. Two or three minutes. It's very, very not VR. I highly advise trying to run it on a desktop. Mm -hmm. I, I was just opening a link from my buddy Joe, and I opened it on my phone and ended up oh, spending yeah. the next 14 hours staring at my phone and running <laughs> my battery down three times. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's, that's um, awesome. <laughs> so th that'll all feed into the conversation, but we're... This is not a VR thing, but as, as a conversation topic about game design and things of that nature, this is something that Joe and I both liked, but will have, I'm sure, differing opinions about elements of it. Mm -hmm. So this is your fair warning. We're going to talk about this in a future episode, probably next week. Um, and so you can go ahead and play it now and then not have to deal with any spoilers. Yeah. And, you know, in the future, I'm going to get some cards printed out with the name of this game and the URL. And whenever somebody tells me that 
for a game to be a real game, it has to have cutting edge graphics. I'm going to take this <laughs> out of my pocket and I'm going to shove it down their throat. <laughs> Thumbtack it to their forehead. Yeah. Um, Here you are. You're going to need this. It's actually printed backwards so that they can read it in a mirror after you thumbtack it to their forehead. Something like um, that. Yeah. So yeah, paper clips, go check it out, and we'll talk about it next week. Anyway, that's our show for today. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm VRHermit underscore Dave. And I'm VRHermit underscore Joe. And don't forget to like and rate us on your podcast player of choice. Thank you for listening.